welcome to the Rebecca Penapinto Project. Today, I'm excited to host Matt Copney. He has over two decades of leadership and technology experience and has served as a CIO and CTO for multiple large global corporations, currently working with Thompson Hine. Matt has launched over a dozen AI products, helped to found multiple different startups, and has led and advised early stage and high growth companies to success. Matt is also the co-author of the HarperCollins leadership book called The Human Cloud and hosts a weekly podcast around the same subject. He is a frequent speaker and contributor on the future of work, business, and technology, and his works include a very successful TED Talk, keynotes, and published works by MIT. I really enjoyed my conversation with Matt, and I love all that he's doing to help accelerate the human cloud. I hope you enjoy the show. Matt, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you because you host your show as well. We met through the really neat SalesCast community. Uh, actually, a dear friend of mine, Amy, was like, within the first 20 minutes of me meeting her, was like, you need to know Matt. Matt's your guy. So I was excited to connect and you know learn a little bit more about your show, loved your book, all of these things we'll dive into today. Um, but I want to start really with where you've specialized the bulk of your career, because to be completely honest, it's an industry I don't know much about being my experience in the cloud heavily, legal law firms, not super uh, just excited and jumping up and down to go to the cloud. But that's where you've really carved your path is with helping the law firms and the legal space to really understand technology and pursue this digital transformation. So walk us through that. Where did the passion start, the opportunity start, and where is the impact that you're able to make in the world today? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. And and it was largely by happenstance. I'd like to say I had a really thought out strategic plan for the trajectory of my career. No, not, not at all. So I, I spent an early part of my career in you know, and fascinated by uh, AI and advanced technology in general. So thinking decision support tools and visualization. I had a, a undergrad, undergraduate degree in biochemistry that I then leveraged to do drug discovery software. So I, it was sort of, I was following that trajectory, but what I discovered was, um, you know, in the, in the area that I am in, uh, legal technology is actually a fairly robust industry here in Ohio with LexisNexis and all the different companies that are around it. And uh, and also I was sort of, I found myself surrounded by lawyers. Ohio has a lot of lawyers. My wife is one, a number of our friends yes. are. So it was sort of like, it just sort of started to, I got sucked into that orbit. But what, what really drew me in early on and has been a common thread is uh, two things. One is lawyers and and law firms in general, as you mentioned, tend to be viewed as, and with probably good, you know, a good measure of of reason for it to not be the most technically savvy. So I I viewed it as a challenge (laughs) to be able to help bring technology to a group that might have been a little suspicious of it, or been just a bit sort of well-tread in their ways. Uh, But the other was actually that it's, it is a rich bed for uh, text analytics, data mining, because it's a very content-rich space, and it's it's a hard problem to solve. So that was actually what really sucked me in uh, was was thinking about how I could apply some of the techniques I brought in other industries into law. Right. And then the rest has been history. I didn't know the nugget about your wife being a lawyer, so that that makes I am it surrounded, pretty crystal clear. Yes, at home, at work, I cannot escape. And not only is she a lawyer. She uh, was a former family law litigator, did a lot of sort of divorce, and and now she is a magistrate. 
So yes, yes, she is. Uh, she's not to be trifled with. <laughs> yeah. Impressive lady. Well, very cool. So what is it that makes them so risk adverse? Like, do they love staying up till midnight analyzing paper contracts? Like I, just help us understand yeah. like, what, what's the hesitation? <laughs> it's been, you know, it's been eye-opening for me because I used to attribute it to just a general sort of not willingness, not willing to try new things or sort of just very, very antiquated. But I don't think that's it at all. As, as I've been around more and, and learned more, there is very much, and it starts in law school. And it's hard to say whether the law school interjects this trait in individuals or individuals have this trait and get into law school, but it's, it's all around the no stone unturned. And uh, I even see it when my wife and I are shopping, uh, we're on Amazon, we're, we're doing research for a vacation. I'm very much like read three reviews, look at a couple of items, go. Yeah. Buy, move on. Five hours later, she's still reading every review. She's gone through the 10th yeah. page of search results. It's very much that ingrained of no stone unturned. It's looking for that, you know, that nugget uh, in a case that can let you triumph in litigation or let you um, succeed in MA. And so I think that attitude permeates everything. And it comes down to tech too. There's an expectation that tech will be perfect, that there's a perfection element to it. And of course, technology is not perfect. It's not any more perfect than we are as people. Um, so I do, I think that that's been sort of the mismatch, but what's been really exciting to see in the legal profession over the last, I'd call it decade, is there's a willingness that that's not always the right way to think about things, that there are different, you know, that's, it's okay to try. It's okay to, to experiment in certain areas and, and sort of to stub, uh, stub your toe and yet still get value out of that. And so the newer generations, particularly those that have been working with over the last couple of years, more receptive, more receptive, I'd say. Yeah. Well, and I would think you can make them comfortable with a lot of the security advancements as well that, yes. you know, if they're at all worried about the security element of whatever the new project they want to accomplish is, most of that has been really worked through within industry. It's just yes. then educating them and then making the space, obviously, for moving people and culture to actually implement these things over the yes. long term. So um, yeah. you mentioned, uh, you mentioned cloud with, with technology and legal and cloud. Uh, in general, we are, I'd say over the hump as an industry, but it took okay. us 10 years to get here. Uh, I've been doing cloud for legal tech since, since the early 2010s. And just within, I'd say the last two to three years, we've really seen uh, overcoming of a lot of the objections and an acknowledgement that it, it can be as, if not more secure than uh, the data center that you hand built in your Manhattan office, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it makes sense. I love that you kind of serve two different roles within the industry too. You know, you consult heavily, but then you have a day job as a CIO and actually focused on building a team and managing things internally. So walk us through, it could be a consulting project outside of the company you're in now or where you're at, where you got to see from beginning to end a way that digital transformation was implemented and the case study that was able to kind of take a life mm -hmm. of its own and really impact the business. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start in the legal space and then there's definitely some yeah. other examples we can talk to, but uh, uh, early on, uh, so this would have been 
2005 to 2010, and then a little bit when I was at Wilmer Hale as well. Uh, a lot of focus around knowledge management and enterprise search. So thinking about, you know, we were at LexisNexis, so we were trying to take that LexisNexis search experience for lawyers to be able to find relevant precedent and bring that into the firm's internal content stores, so document management, email, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we had probably three or four dozen of those sort of projects and implementations and experiences with different clients from the you know, AMLA 25 up through uh, mid-sized firms. So what, what we found was, uh, you know, what, what we found to be, you know, a couple of nuggets that I got out of those from an adoption and transformation perspective was you had, and this sounds obvious in hindsight, you had to have the buy-in of the lawyers, of the users. You need to sort of center around their pain point and their use case. And if you're not scratching that itch, then forget about it, right? No, no amount of snazzy technology and clever sales pitches will get it. But if you're solving a problem, sounds obvious now, uh, and you can explain that to them, then, then you're good. And, and what we found was the biggest pain point in legal for so many software providers is that uh, it's a billable hour model and still is. So if your sales pitch is you're gonna save that attorney 10 hours of time, you've just told them they're losing 10 hours of revenue. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait. So it's, it is a reverse and perverse incentive that's languished in this industry for far too long. Uh, so what I have found though, is that with the great, uh, the great recession in the end of the 2000s was that first chink in the armor. And then definitely through COVID, um, we're seeing definitely a tilt toward clients demanding more from value and not willing to pay for inefficiencies. And uh, that's been a slow trend, but it's definitely helping with uh, transformation because you just can't sit, rest on your laurels the way that, that you know we could as an industry before. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way in the fact that they really don't have an ecosystem built to yeah, incentivize moving faster on a contract necessarily. Um, Cause then it also introduces risk errors of missing things. And um, so what is a good driver to get the attention of these lawyers? Are they looking more for maybe technologies that help them analyze at a different level? Like I, I Educate me a little bit more on the industry maybe yeah. pain points that get them more intrigued in a sales pitch if it's not saving time. Sure. Yeah. And and COVID has definitely, I think, exposed a raw nerve and, and a lot of problems that can be solved. And so one of the things that I've seen is, uh, you know, this is appropriate, collaboration. So being able to do video conferencing, be able to share content more readily, um, those are definitely some areas and pain points that that lawyers are now gravitating to more willingly than they were before. Um, and then on the, on the data front, it really has to do with, I mean, financial performance sure has always been sort of the, the bellwether of analytics in law firms, but I'm starting to see more around workforce allocation. So I think staffing, uh, business development and being able to say, you know, what is our experience and our expertise in this space so that we can respond to a pitch better. So it's, Again, it's one of those burning platform situations. If, if everything's going well, then you're not incentivized to do things quite differently. But if you have a significant, a significant competitive field now and you're under pressure, those little angles, those edges that you can get from data 
are really insightful and can help lead to a win where you might not have had one before. And so it is, it's all about finding that pain point to solve. And it's, um, you know, COVID has helped a lot with that. It's creating a very, very competitive environment for law firms right now. Yeah. But that's encouraging that you see them still wanting customer experience to be an important element of all of that. There's a lot of what creative ways you can align with that with digital, um, because ultimately it can help with who they choose to move forward with more so than look comparing bill rates. It's who's going to be the easier experience to interface with who's more available, accessible. Cause even if you don't necessarily give more time to customers, if you make yourself more accessible in a virtual world, you appear as though you do have more time for those yes. folks. And that makes them more intrigued to mm-hmm. want to partner up. So interesting. This is fascinating. Um, so what about from your day-to-day perspective of actually being a practitioner and working as a CIO, are there some technology innovation and advancements that really excite you in industry that you're looking to roll out, or maybe it's, it's, uh, you know, 2023 vision for what you're looking to do in industry? Yeah, de- definitely. There's uh well, I'll, I'll... I don't think I'll share anything that I'm not allowed to, but I think as an industry as a whole, and we're no different, uh, definitely a lot of interest in, you know, I, I sort of call it the four pillars. It's it's collaboration, which now has evolved more into future of work. So think virtual experiences, uh, what does it mean to be hybrid? Uh, staffing has an element to that. So there's, there's this whole space around future of work that we're all grappling with as an industry. But what I'm seeing is an opportunity to, leverage some technologies that have been around for, I mean, I've been, I've been a hybrid slash virtual employee for most of my career at this point. I mean, since 2010, 2009. Wow. And okay. so it's, uh, there are techniques and technologies that are out there and have been out there for a long time that we can leverage as an industry. And then it's also just practice and experience. Like it gets easier doing these kind of things that we're doing, like we're recording a podcast virtually right now that uh, just with, with time people get more comfortable with. And so I think that will help a lot and we can enable that with some, some tech. Uh, but the other areas, you know, uh, uh, AI in gen- specifically, but just I'd say analytics in general, better business insights. We talked a little bit about that. Um, practice efficiencies. So thinking about how we can do work, workflows, digitization. Again, these are not new concepts, but they've been, it's been neat to see. We've been talking about this as an industry for 25 years, and we're finally getting like energy into these projects that sort of languished for decades. Um, and then, you know, and then the last one is really, uh, it's, the, it's the blocking and tackling that must be done and security for sure, cybersecurity, uh, infrastructure, cloud migrations. These are all things that the industry and our providers are carrying us in that direction. And we need to rise to the challenge. And, and that's one of the things that I'm working to do and have been uh, encouraging peers to do as well as be proactive on those things. You know, don't wait for your vendor to drag you through, like have a plan, have a roadmap. So you're not getting hit with five projects at once because you waited till the last minute. Uh, so yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm, I'm definitely seeing. What about in the courtroom? Do you get an audience there or, or get to interface with how that can be more digital savvy, digital yeah. first? Part of me is like what courtroom these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot more has, particularly on the East Coast, has stayed virtual. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, we're going through, as we're talking, we're going through an ice and snowstorm here. So a lot of my wife's hearings today got moved to virtual. Um, yeah, I do see like there is an opportunity around digitization still. The amount of paper that I still see flowing through the system is mind boggling and, and uh, it's just, it's just mind boggling. I mean, I, you know, I walk into my office and I have maybe a sheet of paper on my desk that was set there, you know, that morning. And then it gets put in a drawer. Cause I don't I like completely cleaned us policy. I walk down the hall and there are mount, literally mounds of paper. It's like um, a pathway to the desk. And so it, it stymies just about every other innovation and transformation project you have if it's in paper form. So that's, that's probably the biggest one I see. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, yeah, I think, I think virtual hearings need to be more, uh, more present, although I will share uh, with my wife's court. She was, uh, this was in a prior role. Uh, She was in juvenile court. So she would have some of her, uh, not clients, but her people that were coming in front of her show up on their couch in sweatpants, you know, with an iPhone. And, and so you got, you sort of got that, you, you lose some of the decorum of the courtroom. That was an interesting experience yeah. where, you know, people tend to dress up a little bit more. Yeah. At least more than just a, a suit jacket with their. Yeah. yeah, over, yeah over a t-shirt or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because the courtroom is a different culture of maintaining that, but allowing people to access it virtually because I'm sure especially in situations where it is divorce law and people have a lot going on taking time to go be physically somewhere yes. to deal with something is just it's not going to fly long term yeah they've got to build flexibility into it yeah if you're a five-hour drive or a ten, you know a two-hour flight away from uh, and you have to come back for hearings that then get continued and and there is a translations another opportunity I think where yeah. the the tech the Google translate those kind of technologies now are real time and fairly accurate. So could those be used in lieu of a translator, which can be very difficult to align, especially in smaller courts. I think there's a lot that could be done in that space. It goes back to that. Are you comfortable with the level of trans uh, translation quality? Is it, if it's not perfect, is that going to be allowed? Even though a human translator is no more perfect. So all those dynamics come back into play. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It's a good perspective. Now, I want to get your perspective back on a topic I know you're super passionate about, which is AI. Um, we had processed some just AI experiences you had had. You have an incredible TED talk out there as well, which happy to share the link to. But um, specifically, you had talked about where there can be pitfalls in AI. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. And for those listening that especially are as intrigued with artificial intelligence as you are, what are some areas to make them think about as they venture into it to just to be aware of, be cognizant of as they're looking to pursue, you know, really getting advanced knowledge in the space. Sure, sure. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think that the lessons that we've learned from applying AI and law firms actually apply universally. So one of the first challenges is inflated expectations. And okay. if you have a, a situation where your management team or your users are expecting it to be flawless out of the gate, uh, you will fail you will fail as a project. You won't even get out the door because it will be dead on arrival. And, and I see this tanking so many, so many AI projects unnecessarily because it has to be viewed as a learning process. It's no different than training an individual to do the job too. It is, it is trial and error and you make mistakes, but you get better at it over time. And so there has to be that willingness uh, and, and 
I see a lot of times the years and patience from from the business uh, to to sort of accept that fact. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, that does segue. You know, one of the other pitfalls I've seen is as a result of that, um, AI practitioners, and I, I don't think this is malicious of intent, and I, I've been guilty, you know, of sort of skirting around this in the past too, is because there's so much pressure to have the right answer that you can you can basically force fit a model to show anything you want it to. I mean, you can you can make it look like it's going to be successful at least in the lab. But then when you get it out in the wild, it may fail. And, and what I do see is a little bit of that where you overtrain or you, you, you sort of make it, sort of force it into an area where it really can't work well in order to meet that business expectation. And all you're doing is forestalling the inevitable of that program crashing and burning. And so um, very much like having a, a scientific mentality, sort of a data science mentality where you're thinking through the scientific method and you're testing hypotheses, you're willing to accept that the answer may be not what you were expecting. So having that kind of mindset helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one area that, and I, I'd love to get your perspective on it too, because it, it's out in the, it's out in the market so much these days is um, algorithmic bias or AI bias in algorithms. Uh, it's, well, let me start that. Well, what's your, what's your perspective on that? Just from what you've read. Well, I talked about that on a different podcast with a friend recently and all these companies like Uber, Uber Eats, whoever, they're data companies now, not just literally getting food from A to B. And there's a lot of assumptions that can be made based upon that data, which they're not even necessarily supposed to be, (laughs) you know, digesting, but about like where I go, what I do and things like that. And that also can turn into like advertising and just them knowing way too much about mm-hmm. my situation and, and my likes and dislikes and things like that. And can be on a lot of cases also very inaccurate. And so there's, I think of it more of even like a privacy component of mm-hmm. like, you've got to be c- careful with a lot of these data and who's collecting on you and what you allow to be turning your data into their own kind of yes. product <laughs> so that it doesn't get out of control, violate things of privacy. And um, ultimately, I think just be invasive to be completely mm-hmm. honest. So yes. um, we are processing it on a podcast and like I keep a lot of my stuff private because I don't want the algorithms to go too crazy and serve up you right. know, my Instagram feed and crap I don't need to buy. Like I was laughing recently that uh, protein cookie dough popped up huh. in my Instagram feed and I don't eat cookie dough, but because I work out and I like protein, it's yes. pro- and I freaking bought it. And I was just like, okay, no, like this <laughs> is I not working like for dough. me. I know. Yeah. So I was laughing about, it. I like finished the, the can of it. And I was like, I don't even eat cookie dough. Like this is, it's, it's not fair to an extent because no. they're using these things against me and I'm becoming part of their machine. And it's a lot of it unbeknownst to me. And so you just have to be careful with a lot of that and not letting the machine um, take too much control of your life based on assumption it makes about what you do in your day-to-day life. Some of it is accurate, but some of it just crosses a line and gets a little wild. So that exactly answers your question, but no, no, tangentially. It does. It does. There's a creepiness element to that for sure. Where, and we've had that occur where we're having some kind of verbal conversation 
not digital. And then you turn around and, you know, scrolling through Facebook or whatever, and there's an ad for it right there. And it's okay. So what's listening to me is my Alexa listening and feeding all that data off to Facebook. You know, you just don't know, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's gotten to the level of sophistication where it does get very um, un- unsettling. And it's, mm-hmm. it's been interesting being a parent in this time, like how we coach our, we have, we have three kids that are school age and how we coach them around how to handle that how to be responsible, you know, be skeptical. So my, my oldest has a cell phone now and he's like, I keep getting this text from so-and-so and they said I should click on this link and but he's good. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. So there is, there is a, there's definitely a generational element where we need to be really mindful because if you grow up with this and it's the expectation that your data is everywhere and that's okay, that's a pretty scary place. So that, that education is really, really important. Um, yeah. To, to your point about what, these algorithms can seem almost human-like in their abilities, but, and they are from the standpoint that they are looking at a bunch of historical data and they're making predictions, which is what we do every minute of every day. That's pretty much what we are as, as people. Uh, and so, but they're, they're only looking at the data they're presented. So the problems you can run into is you're giving it data that's already slanted in a particular way, because you're trying to you're trying to intentionally bias the results uh, direction you want it to go, or the data sample you have is just bad because, you know, here, great example, they built an algorithm to select founders to invest in for VCs, like startup mm-hmm. founders, based on historical data. Well, what did it find? Mostly white young men, because, because those were the companies that the VCs were biasedly investing in over the last decade. And so the algorithm's just propagating that bias and, and it's, it's egregious. Like there's only, I think 3% of funding that goes to women founders, which is just like shocking, shockingly terrible and needs to be fixed. But algorithms will just propagate that and it happens along race and gender and all other dynamics because it's just institutionalizing the bad things we as people have done, which is terrible. So yes. Um, yeah. The last thing I'd say on that is we need more diversity within the AI community because it's largely white males programming algorithms that are deciding these things and that's problematic in its own right. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a foundational problem that we need to solve as a community. Yeah. Well, that's good. One yeah. last thought on the, the creepiness of AI. Um, I wear this aura ring regularly and it tracks your sleep and was on a road trip with a very dear friend of mine who I absolutely adore but he is not worried about health and fitness to the degree that I am. And so all weekend I was talking about my aura ring. Oh, and I think I slipped in a Spartan or two and within 24 hours, he had Spartan and aura ads. Wow. Neither of which were things <laughs> he was going to, that he would not be interested research in, himself. Yeah. yeah. And it was just like, wow, this is, this is creepy. Cause the only thing that would have been happening is his, phone was hearing me. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's it's the just, only, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It was the only yes. data point that could have been feeding mm-hmm. what was being served back up to him to be a product consumed. And this does have real world implications, obviously beyond the, the social media aspects of things. But when it comes to you know, HR analytics, there's a lot of interest in, and uh, software out there to help you vet candidates or to uh, evaluate candidates or uh, evaluate staff and promote them and things of that nature, leadership identification. All of those are algorithms that are based on historical data of what we know to be 
biased institutions and, and systems. And so uh, I really caution when you're looking at HR data in particular approach with very, you know, kid gloves, very mm-hmm. cautious because you can go down a really bad uh, direction and not realize that you're even doing it. Um, and anonymizing data doesn't necessarily help because there are other traits that are indicative of, you know, the school you went to or the assignments that you got because of, uh, because of who you were. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a tough problem. So be, be cautious folks. <laughs> that's my, my main message. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. All very that's interesting. Tough. Um, I want to talk about another topic that I've been very intrigued by as I've gotten to know you, your business and what you're doing. And that's the lovely book you have behind you called the human cloud. Um, I think you co-authored it with another Matt. Yes. <laughs> so that made the audiobook experience pretty entertaining. Um, all very well done. It's just an incredible book. The way I understand it mainly is looking at the new way that humans are becoming their own kind of independent workforce mm-hmm. as a description of what the cloud has done for digital transformation. And now all these different freelancers and these people that can do different projects that they want and choose, it's becoming infinitely scalable to being able to access any kind of copywriting you want, any kind of creative you want, and be able to let everyone to be pretty entrepreneurial without being confined by the nine to five and working for somebody else. So I loved the book. I want to hear a little bit more about the inspiration for it. And even curious to see your perspective on how you define the human cloud, because I was super intrigued by the concept and right away it made complete sense to me. And so I really enjoyed the read. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. And much like my career, not as nearly as much foresight as you might think. So I had, uh, uh, I have a creative side, so I I love to write uh, art, music, et cetera. And, you know, as a corporate IT executive, not exactly the greatest outlet for that. So uh, love love my job, love the role, but I needed something else. So I had done a lot of ghostwriting over the years. Uh, okay. And I happened to ghostwrite a, an AI article for Matt Matola, my, my now co-author. And uh, so we, we hit it off. We did a couple other projects together. And then famous last words was he said, uh, hey, I'm working on a book. It's almost done. Uh, but I need some like I need someone older <laughs> with more credentials that can help you know make it look real. So good. So you want to you know you want to put your name on it? Well, yeah, sure. Come to find out, yeah, no, not anywhere near being written. Um, but no, we were we were fortunate. We ended up uh, finding a great agent. We got turned down by many many uh, publishing companies, but landed with HarperCollins. They took a chance on us, um, which was great. And so we wrote the book and we launched it. And we actually finished the book and put it to press in January 2020. Okay. And then it launched in about a year ago, January, 2021. And within that year, COVID happened. So what was, you know, what was for us sort of a future looking, what's the world going to look like a decade from now with work? Uh, all of a sudden we fast forwarded a decade. And, and so the book has become incredibly relevant to, to what we're all going through. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. I would say one of my favorite parts too, is other Matt even says, the reason you guys are partnered and you were able to come collaborate and make his project even more than what he had envisioned was because of the human cloud. He's like, if yes. that wasn't the environment that we had come to know, he didn't think he would have normally had access to you. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And it's been, you know, it's been interesting because we've been delving a lot deeper on these topics. We've got the podcast as well that we started about six months ago. Um, and so we've, we've talked to a lot of people in this space and 
you know, as I think back on it, freelancing has been a thing for a long, long, long time. Consult like consultants are effectively freelancers if they're, if they're entrepreneurial and solo. Um, but, but before it was always something else. It was sort of off on the side that this weird contingent of people that couldn't fit in a corporate life that were sort of, they were broken somehow and they were, but that was their way they made their living. And Mm -hmm. The, the platforms we've been talking about have made it easier for freelancers to engage with companies and each other. And it's broken down the physical boundaries that we've had as well as the technology boundaries. So what we're finding is there's not an us and them mentality anymore. We're sort of all becoming different flavors of the same type of workforce. And, and we actually, mm-hmm. on one of our episodes recently, uh, the woman, woman that we had on it was talking about uh, corporate corporations becoming talent marketplaces that, you know, you have sometimes a core hub, but increasingly the sort of the periphery or the folks that you have engaged on projects don't need to be full-time employees. They can be contractors, freelancers, it can be a mix and you're not tethered to one approach or the other. And that just, that, that really, really resonated with me because um, it, it will fundamentally change the way that we do work. I I don't see a way around it. The other element of it I loved too was don't interview, just give it to three people and see who does a great job. And that's who you decide to move forward with. It was kind of like, give them a shot to perform. And then you choose based on performance, not this formal interview process. And, you know, there's so many different things that companies do to make you jump through enough hoops to get hired that aren't even relevant to the job and and have been proven time and again, statistically and through scientific studies and everything. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Uh, One of the things his mantra is he has three questions that he asks every person and it's uh, why, what is it? Why you, why us? And um, the third one I'm forgetting, it's sort of like, what, what do you get excited about? Or what, what are you excited about this project for? And then, so it's very much just about the personality and the connection, um, because in general, the credentials are there to complete the work. It's more about the fit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. Well, stuff. I can guarantee you to hire a graphic designer, or somebody to do my logo, my branding, uh, only an interview would not have. <laughs> no, no especially for, for that. Yes. Yeah. Like I need to see a write-up. I need to see your work. And so, um, you've got to like GitHub is a great example for in the developer space examples of work and how that, that mm-hmm. lives out there. It gives so many more people opportunity and exposure to be their own entrepreneur and participate in just a wider audience and wider impact with what yes. is known as the human yeah. cloud. So I loved the book. I thought it was great. A uh, huge fan of what you're doing and um, definitely want to send more people your way for the show. So we'll share all those, those links as well. So I want to shift to a little bit more of a personal note now, because as a practitioner, you're not just day in, day out, obviously getting to write code and be a technologist, but you have to be a leader and build teams. And um, there's a part of leadership that you're really big on, which is servant leadership. So I want to get your perspective on that. And over the course of your career, being a practitioner, what have you learned to ensure that you're always a servant leadership perspective in every scenario that you're in mm-hmm. to ultimately be successful with your team? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and, you know, early in my career, I had a very negative view of both management and sales. <laughs> now I've come yeah. full circle. I've come around uh, where I see the value in both, but I just, I always viewed management as being, you know, somewhere else. Uh, they tended to be viewed as 
very uh, just not personable, um, out for the money, you know, they could just cut an entire division and not even think twice about it and those kind of things. So I just had a very negative view. It, you know, partly backed by some things that I saw early in my career, but I was fortunate to have a couple of, of early mentors and see people that were in senior leadership positions that I'm like, they were servant leaders. I'm like, I, I could do like, they were all about empower. So, so that I try to follow what they have sort of instilled in me, which is um, empower people with the tools they need to succeed, give them the support they need and then get out of their way. And like, it's, it's taking the typical management period and the pyramid and flipping it on its head where mm -hmm. the folks that are doing the actual work are the most valuable and you are behind the scenes sort of helping empower them. And, and it's much, you know, it is, it's a tough jump because if you're a practitioner, your value and your worth, you sort of tie to building tangible things. And then you become a leader and you're like, I'm not building anything tangible anymore. Like, where's the code? Where's the software that I'm writing? Where's the product that I'm releasing? Uh, where's the revenue that I'm driving from sales? So, so it, it takes a mind shift, but once you realize that you're building the systems to empower those people and a pipeline of uh, future talent, so the pipeline management and so forth, if you're doing all of that, you succeed as a business and that's the value you're creating. But that takes a long time to, to digest. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I'm interested in, especially now with future of work and this sort of tilt more toward autonomous organizations is I don't think leadership necessarily is a hierarchy in the not so distant future. I think it's actually becomes another skill and another resource. Like you need people that are thinking about strategy that are guiding the organization are, are managing the people side of that, but that is another role that is on par and parallel with everybody else. So it, it even isn't necessarily flipping the pyramid as much as it's flattening it out these days. And it raises some really interesting questions about what happens to middle management when a lot of the administrative features of that sort of go away. And it's, it's all about people and leadership at some point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, well, that's it's good. going to be an interesting future of work. <laughs> yeah. I think servant leaders are the only people that anyone who's participated in the human cloud are even going to be willing to work for. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be that bad leaders sort of could get away with it. Um, they could hide easier and no, like in this, in this world now with how competitive things are and how fluid talent is, if you're a jerk leader, <laughs> you're not going to survive very long. You just can't. Yeah. Yeah. You won't be able to keep those people who have had a ton of autonomy and and some at the top of their game and the best in their craft because of the portfolio they built, but they're not going to, they're not going to work for someone who doesn't give them that autonomy in that context as well. That's right. Yeah. The power, power dynamic has definitely shifted in the last few years for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's positive. I, yeah. I was going to say, it's hard to, I, I agree. I mean, unless you're one of those people that's trying to cling to power, it's uh it's hard to argue that more empowerment to, to individuals and to people that have been disadvantaged in the past, like, you know, what's wrong with that? They, they deserve the shot. They deserve the access that they've been deprived in the past. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's good. Well, I have one final question for you that kind of comes off of this servant leadership idea and it's around principles. And I'm curious to hear from you, what is one principle that you've lived by to really help you overall be successful in business? Yeah. Um, so I would say, balance as a, as a word and a theme. And that's everything from, uh, you know, balance in how I approach stress and the rigors of a leadership position, meaning I've found balance with my family and with my health 
and, and, and not gone overboard there. Um, it comes into my management style where I'm not hot or cold. I'm not a micromanager or completely hands off. So it's sort of finding that, that middle, uh, is where the art's been. It's, and I, I had a, a lot of studies in Eastern philosophy and I did judo back in college and all that kind of stuff. So I have a sort of that kind of philosophy, philosophical bent and, uh, and there's a lot of that in there. And, and that's probably where it came from initially. Yeah. Balance can be a hard thing to find though. Yes. Uh, especially when you're <laughs> a leader and you've got big goals and things you've got to accomplish to temper that and to, to allow a little bit of emotional intelligence and balance come to it is a very fine line. So how do you find that on a day-to-day basis? Do you find space in your day where you're making sure that, you know, there's breathing room, maybe meditating, pausing, things like that. Yeah. I was going to say it's a continual work in process, uh, progress. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I do. I try, I try to find space. I'm I'm an early riser now, uh, usually around five or five 30 because just because, uh, with three kids and the craziness that goes on with school and sports and everything else, it is the one time of day where I have like, this is my sanctums, my area where I can go sanctuary and and think mm-hmm. and and meditation, um, running those kinds of things that just help me get out there. But I will say, like one of the things is if you empower your people, say you can think of it as delegation. But I'm like, no, it's not. It's it's giving them, it's letting them do what they want to do. Um, if you do that well, and you do that across your, you know, across your your professional and your personal life, then you can have that space. And and that's the one thing I advise people: like, don't hold on to everything. Just don't. It may seem like you're benefiting yourself by protect, protecting your job. I've never seen that work. <laughs> you're burning yourself out and you're, and you're not looking good to management because you're viewed as a blocker. So like, just let it go. Let it go. Yeah. yeah that's, that can be the other words to live by. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Well, Matt, you're awesome. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Keep making a big impact in the legal industry and everyone go check out the human cloud. It's an incredible book and you will really enjoy the read. Well, I love what you're doing. Your podcast is wonderful and uh, keep listening people since you're already listening to it here. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Matt. Safe travels.